Hello and welcome to the Association for the Study of Animal Behaviour special of How Many Geese. I'm Jack Baddams. And I'm Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a nature podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously, then we are the natural selection. On today's show. These last two seasons, that's (laughs) my take-home message. Ants are better people than people. 900 kilos of pure capybara meat coming at me. Exactly. We keep saying honey guide. It sounds like some sort of equivalent of wingman. (laughs) (laughs) Guiding you straight to the honeys. (laughs) Okay, so for our second episode in conjunction with the Association for the Study of Animal Behaviour, I want to talk about a really cool bird that I'd completely forgotten existed, which is, for me, I think quite a quite a major event what would you forget that existed i completely forgot that this bird existed until it was mentioned by listener scott place so scott i know you listen we've had a few questions and interactions with you scott so thank you for bringing this bird to my attention it exhibits some really cool behavior okay i'll tell you how scott brought this bird to my attention it was when i was asking for animals for you to fight Mm. and scott wrote to me with this how many honey guides could roddy take in a fight but For every five honey guides, there's also one honey badger. (laughs) (laughs) I thought this was an absolutely sensational suggestion. Have you heard about the honey guide? I've never heard of the honey guide. I've heard of the honey badger. Really? Okay. I've never heard of the honey guide. I thought you might have heard of the honey guide. So, for people who might not know, the honey guides are a, a group of birds that contain species within their family, particularly the greater honey guide, that famously lead honey badgers to beehives so that the honey badger can break open the hive, help itself to the honey, and then leave the honey guide to fly down and eat some of the now exposed eggs, larvae, and pupae, and things like that. Another great little aside is the Latin name of the greater honey guide is Indicator Indicator, which is just, I mean, it's just brilliant naming all around. I love that. The honey guide and the honey badger are this famous twosome in sort of animal... Um, it's not it's not quite popular culture because you would have heard of it if mm. it was sort of a, a well-known thing, but it's something that I had heard about, something that I was aware of. And I thought, we've got this brilliant link between these two species, but there's a reason I'd not asked it you in the fight section. Yep. I go to do the research to build up the tail of the tape that I always do, and there it is. One of the first things I read, despite popular claims, honey guides do not lead honey badgers to bee nests. Well, I don't feel as bad now. Exactly. (laughs) But for me, this was something that I'd believed for a long time. I was like, yeah, honey guides, lead honey badgers. I was absolutely rocked to my core. Messaged Scott about this. He was also absolutely devastated. But it's just apparently one of those myths in literature that's just been perpetuated over time, the tale of the honey guide and the honey badger. It was reported by a Swedish naturalist in the 18th century that he'd been told by african communities that they did this however it's never actually been seen so it's never actually been witnessed by any biologists or officially documented now i don't want to reinforce the stereotype that's like indigenous africans say they've seen it but no western biologist has therefore it doesn't happen but by now this would have been a behavior that we would have witnessed but but here's the thing i swear i've seen that on tv or something so what i want to do i want to just show you a little video clip Is it actually David Attenborough dressed up as a honey guide? (laughs) (laughs) I'll be honest, it's just as ridiculous. I'm going to bring up the clip and show you the clip of the honey guide and the honey badger. Yeah. Okay? So, Roddy, I've just shown you the only clip that exists on YouTube of the honey badger and the honey guide behaviour. How would you describe it? (laughs) (laughs) 
I would describe it as um, the same kind of production value as if you've ever seen a kind of 50s or 60s sort of religious movie. (laughs) (laughs) It's like Jesus's trials in the desert. That kind of thing, yeah. There's a kind of a narrative, a jaunty background tune, and it's got that very kind of, hello, this is the BBC. Behold, as the honey badger strolls through the desert, lost, adrift, scared, (laughs) frightened, wherever shall he get his honey? Oh, look, a friendly bird passing by. And in the tree is an actual bird, but then Mm -hmm. when it cuts to the honey badger and the bird, it is quite obviously a sort of local village school panto <laughs> level of a, pl- a fake bird on a fishing rod yeah. that's just out of screen bouncing this bird along harassing this little With this badger incessant noise that I'm, i don't even know if that's the real call of the honey guide or not it's no just idea the, but that whole thing is set up obviously the the honey guide isn't really there and it's all a fake bird yeah i don't know if you also noticed that whenever it cut away to a lizard the lizard was 100 percent a bearded dragon (laughs) (laughs) which are definitely australian (laughs) so basically the point is to say that the only actual video footage of this hunt famed honey guide honey uh, badger behavior is completely faked but the honey guide did still get its name for a reason Honey badger doesn't need it. Honey badger's good enough at finding honey itself. That might have meant that we couldn't do the fight that Scott suggested, but I think the honey guide is still worth talking about in its own right because they are really cool animals that, like I say, have earned their name for a reason. Because they don't guide badgers, but they do guide people. Honey guides did get their name from a very long, very ancient, mutual relationship that they've developed with people can i just throw something in here because Mm -hmm. we keep saying honey guide Mm -hmm. and i do like it but it sounds like (laughs) some sort of equivalent of wingman (laughs) 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 guiding you straight to the honeys If ever, you know, the concept of a wingman was getting rebranded, or wing woman, wing person, whatever, honey guide, I think, should be up for discussion. <laughs> it is a fantastic note. Yeah. So, I think this is a really cool uh, and really niche behaviour that has evolved over thousands of years with ancient human communities. And you think about the time that this will have taken to evolve, it's really, really cool. So, honey is a big part of the diet for many people living in these areas of Africa where the Greater Honey Guide lives. And they're willing to go to pretty great lengths to get it. They'll free climb up the baobabs. They'll, you know, break open the nests of African bees, all that sort of stuff to get at it. But they, before they get to the stage where they're actually harvesting the nest, obviously, they've got to go and find them. Now, what happens when, uh, when humans are walking through the bush in these areas, if a honey guide sees one, it will start making these specific calls, these chattering-like calls, basically to get the attention of the human. It's basically saying, I'm over here, blah, 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 look at me, notice me. So the honey guide itself, it's a pretty a pretty nondescript little bird, little brown bird, and um, it makes this chattering noise to get the attention of the people as they're walking through the bush. However, if a honey hunter wants to find a honey guide... Then they both swipe right. <laughs> <laughs> hot honey guides in your area (laughs) Um, but what's really cool is some of these old African communities have developed special calls and whistles to bring the honey guide to them so for example the Boran people 
use a very loud specific whistle that they call the fulido when the search for honey is about to begin. So before they're about to head out into the bush, they make this specific whistle and that doubles their encounter rate with a honey guide. So the honey guides in specific areas have learnt the specific sounds that the people will make when starting their search for honey. And they know that's basically their summons that the honey hunt is about to start and the honey guide's assistance is required. So it then makes itself known and the hunt begins. Whoa, <laughs> this is cool. It's really cool, isn't it? And just think about like, the thing I kept thinking as I was reading more about this is just think about all the steps that's taken to evolve. So there must have been these stepping stones over time where a honey guide or the ancestor of a honey guide realized or was picking up the scraps after humans had broken into a beehive and then it just escalated to the extent where they were able to talk to each other, communicate to each other and lead each other to this mutualistic beneficial resource. I mean, it goes back to all the talk of the different types of learning in the previous episode on animal behaviour. Yeah. With the cultural transmission, the teaching. I'm trying to work out and unpick which one this would have to be. I imagine it's some kind of cultural transmission Yeah. between the honey guides. Are honey guides yeah. found over an area where there are two groups of humans doing this? Mm -hmm. Or are honey guides found where there are two groups of humans going out for honey, but only one area where they have this relationship? So honey guides are found over quite a big area. Yeah. Uh, of the honey guide species, the greater honey guide is the only one that we definitely know for certain guides. Yeah. Guides people to honey. There's also another one which has been, uh, some people think that may guide people to honey. Um, the rest don't. Yeah. Uh, they're found in Africa and Asia. But the greater honey guide is found in quite a large area. In some of those places, it acts as a guide for honey. In other places, it doesn't. It just lives completely on its own. But in the places where it isn't acting as a guide for honey, yeah. are there people there going out for honey? Well, that's interesting because there are areas where we've seen the honey guide lose that behaviour. Because the people have stopped going out. Well, that's what I was. Honey. That was my next bit. Is if the relationship is at a point that a hundred percent of honey guides need people mm. to play their part in the thing, mm. and if communities are urbanizing, then that's exactly yeah yeah. So in areas of Kenya where they've started growing sugar, yeah, that desire for honey lessens as they've got access to sugar that they've grown. They're not going out for honey this is the sad bit they no longer respond to the calls of the honey guide that's trying to get their attention so the honey guide sees the people oh, it's like yeah. guys come on it's honey time yeah you know you know how oh. it goes it's time for the honey party and the people just walk on by and then over time the honey guides just lose that behavior and i should say that they do love the larvae and the grubs and the wax that they're getting from these nests but they can also feed on a range of honey a range of other things the honey guides so it's not like they're doomed to die because the people don't carry on this relationship but it's just really sad are they able to get at the nests in any way themselves not really no oh, um wow. because they'd be stung by the bees they're you know these are hidden within crevices in bark yeah. or underground the honey guide can't access the bees nests without assistance so it properly then is like a thousand year old yeah. relationship yeah from a very very yeah long time from like but the first peoples in africa maybe even before homo sapiens maybe there was the ancestors of honey guides oh, and other humans working on. together we don't know how far back this goes but this bird and these people 
working together for thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years maybe, in this mutual relationship to get themselves this food source. And now we're leaving them behind. I know, it's sad, isn't They've it? been our honey guide for so long. They've been, they've been the, the, <laughs> the wingman we've always needed, yeah. and now we're just leaving them adrift. Yeah. Oh, we need, we need, can we just, how do we help? <laughs> Kickstarter? Like a GoFundMe? Maybe we could train them to find other things. Yeah. Like, I, th- right, okay, like let's think about this. Gold. It, it, exactly, right? Ooh. So it's sad that the world is moving on. But the world does move on. Yeah. Industries rise and fall. Clearly, the desire for honey is lessening in some parts. The honey guide needs to diversify its enterprise and needs to start being able to lead things. You know, do the whistle when you want to go to McDonald's and the honey guide will take you to the nearest one. So we're saying honey guides to replace sat-nav. Yes. Yeah. Imagine a honey guide taxi driver. Because the thing is, so when these honey hunts starts, the Boran people, let's say for them, they whistle the honey guide in. They're like, right, the honey hunt's starting. Then the honey guide has a territory that it covers and it knows where all of those beehives are. It's got them mentally mapped. It knows where they are and it takes the people to them. So it's like a taxi driver. This is so much cooler than the honey badger thing. This is <laughs> know, so right? much cooler than the honey badger, but 50s BBC or whatever, well, maybe a bit, six, whatever, yeah. decided to put on this <laughs> farce, this absolute charade on a shoestring budget with a poundland <laughs> fake bird and reptiles from different continents just to create a lie yeah. when the truth is that there's an entire honey industry out there yeah. that's built on the back of a tiny little brown bird. Yeah, which we're now leaving behind after thousands of years. Yeah. I also just, on the taxi driver side of things, that if in London there's always a new app for this, that, and the next, right? There was like Uber, then there was Bolt, then there was this. Now yeah. there's like food delivery things and all the rest. Honey Guide... I don't entirely know what the app is, but that's that's its name. <laughs> but Honey Guide, as a like, oh, finish the night. How are you getting home, Honey Guide? Oh, that is brilliant. It is. That is really good. Yeah, patent it right yeah. now. Yeah, I know. I'm not entirely sure how the legal system works. Really, <laughs> inverted commas. <laughs> but we want royalties if we see this appearing anywhere else. If I see an app called Honey Guide pop up, I will sue. <laughs> okay, so let's go back to these people that are still actively using Honey Guides right now. Yeah. The honey hunters decide they're going to go out and look for honey. They do the whistle. They make the special noise. The honey guide comes in. The honey guide knows where multiple nests are within its territories, and it will take the people straight to them. So for the Boran people, it's been shown that it reduces their time taken in searching for honey by two-thirds, Yep. while the Hadza people of northern Tanzania have their rate of finding nests increased by 560% by the assistance of honey guides. Oh, my God. Man, we just have pigeons. <laughs> Like I wish if I if I could finish a night in a pub in a part of London that I don't know and just turn to a pigeon and be like kebab, <laughs> <laughs> the pigeon, just come out do the whistle, yeah. <laughs> and the kebab guide yeah. pigeon, and a crow will just sort of usher me along to get some takeaway. That's what I need. Another really cool thing is that not only do the birds really decrease the amount of time they spend looking for the honey but it, they also lead them to nest with a significantly higher yield of honey than if the people were just looking themselves 
So it's not only that they're taking them to nests faster, it's also that they're taking them to better nests. Oh my God, they've got a concept of real estate. <laughs> okay, so once the nest has been found and the honey has been harvested by the people, what do you think the people do next? Pay, tip, tip the driver. Pay the man. In, <laughs> in many bits of African folklore and some cultures, they do leave out some of the wax and larvae for the honey guy to feast on. And it's believed that failing to do so, failing to do so will mean that the honey guide on its next mission will lead you to a lion, bull elephant, or venomous snake if you do not pay the honey guide for its assistance. Man. However, others say that giving the honey guide food spoils the bird and makes it less likely to find more in the future. And the Hadza people will frequently burn, bury, or hide the wax with the intent on keeping the bird hungry and more likely to guide again. Poor honey guide's getting absolutely shafted. Oh my, we're so, we're so bad. Like, we're so bad. Like, we put a hole in the ozone layer We've acidified the rivers. We've polluted the ocean. There's oil spills, climate change, global warming. We've got too many cows that we're <laughs> farting the planet to oblivion, right? And now I'm finding out that this ancient relationship with a bird, when even when we normally look to like, oh, you know, we should be more in touch with the land, like yeah. perhaps native peoples, and let's go back, you know, this older way of life is so... And I'm finding out that even a... a tens of thousands of year old relationship we're still like suck it mate we're burning your food in front of you <laughs> it's really mean <sighs> it is really mean but it obviously still it the honey guide is obviously still getting enough food out of this relationship for it to continue existing yeah it's obviously still you know even if the honey guide leads people and doesn't get fed some of the time it must still be happening to some extent that it's worth the honey guide's time putting this effort in yeah before you do feel completely sorry for the honey guide though I did just want to add, it is a brood parasite, like the cuckoo, right, okay. that goes around and lays its eggs in the nests of other birds. And they also take a lot of short-haul flights. <laughs> <laughs> the honey guide is a really good example of mutualistic behaviour or symbiotic relationship yep. where two species have come together and are both benefiting from this interaction. And I just wanted to pull out another couple of examples that I found on my search into mutualistic behaviour as part of this animal behaviour special. Now, the next one is quite sweet. We're going to go under the sea and we're going to meet the gobies. You know about mm. gobies? Goby dick. <laughs> Means nothing and is completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> gobies, little fish that sit on the seafloor on rocks and stuff. Yep. Uh, you can find them in rock pools if you go looking for them. Um, but the problem is for a goby is that to hide, it's got to wedge itself under something. It's got to wedge itself under a rock or into a crevice or something like that. If only, if only there was an animal out there that could help it to hide. Some kind of crevice-shaped crab. Well, enter the pistol shrimp. I'm going to call that a close miss. I think that's <laughs> hitting the post. Yeah. <laughs> Um, now, the pistol shrimp are burrowers, and so dig their own burrows into sandy seafloors. Yep. They're very proud of, and they maintain them constantly. They're constantly, like, you know, maintaining them, keeping the upkeep. Very house proud. proud. Yeah. Exactly, the pistol shrimp. Now, these burrows just so happen to be big enough for a goby to squeeze into as well. Oh, roommate. And the goby's like, great, this is where I can hide. And the shrimps seem to be quite happy about letting them in there. In fact, when they leave the burrow to feed the pair stay really close together 
So out they come from the burrow, and the shrimp will always maintain physical contact with the goby by resting one of its very sensitive antennas on the fish. So when they go out for a walk, it's a bit like an old person being helped across the road by a younger person with their sort of arm around them or something like that. And the uh, shrimp will always rest its antennae on the goby so it knows where it is. And they go walking sort of hand in hand out into the reef. Why? Well, the reason it's doing this is because when the goby spots a potential predator, it bolts for cover Mm. and releases a chemical signal at the same time. Mm. The shrimp... Shits itself. (laughs) (laughs) That's the biological term <laughs> for shitting itself. It's not, listener. It's yeah. an actual chemical signal. Right. Um, the shrimp picks up on these chemical cues and the fact that the goby has just literally fucked off yeah. <laughs> as well um, to know when it needs to hide. Yeah. So the shrimp is alerted way before it would sense it that there's danger around. So it goes back to the burrow. They only come out of the burrow when the goby basically deems it safe enough the goby is always the first one to go outside. There was a study in 2019 that showed that the gobies, as lookouts, this species that they studied was called the fierce shrimp goby. Ooh. It was always the first one of the two to venture outside. And it seems that the shrimp's decision to leave the safety of its home only begins once its goby partner has decided that it's safe to leave the burrow. It's like a guide dog. Yeah, it is. Yeah. That's the sort of way of thinking about it. Um, and the shrimp... It's happy for the goby to live in its burrow because it acts as a bit of a watchman, yeah. early warning system, uh, tells it when it's safe to go out and feed, and then when it needs to get back into the burrow. So the uh, shrimp gets a watchman and the goby gets a home. The shrimps are also thought to benefit from this relationship with the fish because uh, they get an increase in food. They get to eat the any parasites that are on the fish's body and also its feces, which is just delightful. Man, a new feces was going to come into it at some point. <laughs> well, if you like that, you're going to like the next one. So that's the gobies and the shrimps. Lovely. I thought I'd put this one in there because it is something that uh, I think you'll like, given the animal involved. And it's also one that I think you've probably heard of. I think I can. If I, I say the words... Can I just take a swing at this before okay, we start? Okay, go for it. Go for is it. it the tarantula with the tiny frog? Oh, it's not the tarantula and the tiny frog. It's one of your other favourite animals. Bats. Bats. Ah, and a plant bats and a plant seed dispersal no no although seed dispersal is a great example of mutualism yeah where the plant's giving food to an animal and then the animal's dispersing its seeds yeah they're a major part of tropical reforestation yeah major um that would well, that, be the fruit bats eating yes the... yes so is this uh insectivorous so lot, bat it is an insectivorous bat and it's a lot more niche and it involves a plant that I have in my living room. So it's a pitcher plant. It's a pitcher plant. Pitcher plant and a bat. Is it a bat or is it the shrew? Isn't there a shrew that goes to the loo in a pitcher plant? And it, yeah. So does a bat. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so Crack on. So there's two animals that go to the toilet inside a pitcher plant. Now, to explain what a pitcher plant is, it's a carnivorous plant and it has big pitchers like you'd pour sangria out of that act as traps for insects to fall into. So they have... I don't know if it's nectar, but they have a sweet substance that attracts insects in. The insects crawl in. Once they go over the lip of the pitcher, it's all coated in very slippy sides. They fall down into the digestive juices at the bottom of the pitcher, get digested. That's how the plant gets its energy. Yeah. Uh, You went for nectar. 
Mm-hmm. I don't think it is nectar. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that because I think nectar is in flowers. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to play the universal mystery biology substance card and just say enzymes. Enzymes. <laughs> don't know what it is. Enzymes. <laughs> Bosh. Top trumps. Well, there's definitely enzymes in the liquid at the bottom of the pitcher that digests the um, animal. And these pitchers can get quite big. You can get some quite large yeah, yeah. pitchers. And um, even though it's an absolute death trap for all these insects and things that it's harvesting, there is one animal that's evolved to climb inside them and use it as a nice, basically, sleeping bag when it's not active during the daytime, and that's the woolly bats of Borneo. Oh, yes. And the bats basically crawl inside these pitchers, so in the morning, as the bats are coming you know, back from feeding and being active at night, the woolly bat crawls inside the pitcher, hangs upside down, gripping onto the, um, the surface of the, the rim, and... Uh, then flies off, spends a whole day in there, flies off in the evening. Uh, so it gets a nice little home. The plant is getting the guano, the feces yeah. of the bat, dropping down into the into the bottom of the plant, and then it gets to digest that and gets its nutrients from it. And that provides, apparently, all the uh, nutrients that the plant needs to survive. And you're quite right. There is also another Bornean pitcher plant that shrews climb onto the rim of the pitcher and quite literally sit on it like a toilet. Yeah. And there's almost like a lid on the picture like a toilet lid that sticks up at like a 90 degree angle and that does have like a nectary sweet substance on it enzymes the the shrew licks that off and just to get it has to be sat in the perfect position where it's sat over the pitcher to drop the kids off to the pool and exactly in it goes the pitcher gets um, some nice fertilizer as well for it to eat because we should just say the reason that they are carnivorous plants is because they grow in areas where the soil is incredibly poor. And so mm. that's why they trap insects and need these other nutrients coming into them through other means. Mm. So poop, mm-hmm. great one. So that's another example of some some niche mutualism there. And then I want to finish by talking about another type of mutualism with another animal. I sort of see you as having like a holy trinity of three animals. Frogs? Yep. Bats? Yep. It's something you mention on the show quite a lot. Oh, good. I'm going to be embarrassed now when I hear this. Go. What? Ants. Oh, they're a new addition. They are oh, They are. A, they are through the show I'm <laughs> okay. developing this. Yeah, Fair yeah, enough. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so finally I want to finish on another bit of mutualism uh, about ants. Yeah. This is another mutualism between animal and plant. Yep. And another one that I just want you to think about the time that this must have taken to evolve, okay? Like we spoke about honey guides and people. Um, Now, the first member of this mutualism that we need to meet... Is it an acacia tree? It's an acacia tree. What do you know about this? I just have it in my head that there's a very thorny plant that has... Does it grow spaces for ants to live exactly let's go let's go that's about as far as i know on this so i'm ready to yeah i mean a whole other thing we could have gone into is them farming aphids yeah is them basically literally quite quite literally acting as farmers and they'll tend herds of aphids on plants and what they're trying to get out of them is the honeydew which is the basically the it's not the feces but it's the secretions that come out the back of a an aphid as it's sucking the juices from the plant this sweet liquid comes out the back of an aphid ants got absolutely crazy for it and they'll 
protect herds of aphids on plants and they'll protect them from predators so things like ladybird larvae and things that might come in to eat the aphids ants will protect them they'll also move aphids around onto different plants to keep them producing the amount of honeydew that they need they just properly farm them the aphids are getting protection the ants are getting the honeydew another really cool mutualistic behavior and we need to work on an ant special so hard <laughs> they're, so, they're, ants, they're amazing they're crazy they're so insane anyway back to the acacia so this is the bullhorn acacia tree now it's not in africa as you might expect i thought acacias were limited to africa turns out they're not uh, this is over in mexico and central america oh. for people who might not know acacias are the ones with the big thorns that you always see giraffes eating on you know any any program filmed in africa yep so unlike other acacias the bullhorn acacias are deficient in the bitter alkaloids that are usually located in the leaves that defend them against herbivores ravaging insects all that sort of stuff that might come and damage the leaves um so the bullhorn acacia doesn't have that so rather than just evolve these alkaloids the acacia seems to have taken a very roundabout way of overcoming this problem and learning how to protect itself but it's really cool so the relationship begins when the tree attracts a newly mated queen acacia ant using chemical signaling so it sends out these chemicals the acacia ant comes in and the queen is looking for a place to lay her eggs and the bullhorn acacia is so called because it has these big old thorns that look just like bullhorns and they're pretty sizable things and they're hollow inside and only require the ants to cut a little entrance hole and they have the perfect place to go in lay their eggs rear their larvae and the thorns are completely waterproof and great at holding moisture on the inside which really helps the larvae to grow bonkers <laughs> absolutely bonkers so once the queen has nibbled into this thorn she can lay 15 to 20 eggs to produce the first generation of workers and as the colony grows more of the thorns get inhabited this is insane <laughs> this is like it's madness i've got a picture of these bullhorn acacias next to me now and yeah they're fat horns but yeah. like like you said the sequence of events here yeah the bit I want to go back to is it releases a chemical signal to attract a newly mated female. Now, there was... How the, how does a tree know that an ant somewhere has just been shagged? <laughs> how does a tree know that? <laughs> now, there was actually... There was, a whole, there was a whole bit, as I was researching this, about the chemical signals that are in uh, play between plant and ant and all this sort of stuff. I didn't quite understand it all or have the time to understand it all because it, it was some pretty serious science. But the mutualism and close relationship between these two species is very, very specialist. Also, just looking next to me, you can get them as bonsai trees. So oh, hello. Sons ant. <laughs> <laughs> can you get little bonsai ants to go with them? Bonsai ants. Yeah. So... Once the queen has started laying her eggs into these thorns, um, she builds up a colony. What does the colony need? It needs food. The tree also provides a food source for the ants in two ways. It secretes nectar, but it also produces these things called Beltian bodies. And Beltian bodies are basically, they're like protein lipid nodules that are easily detachable 
and sit on the end of the leaves and their only purpose their entire existence is just to be perfect little food parcels for the ants come off it <laughs> come off it <laughs> they just exist to feed the ants to keep to, they're the perfect thing that they use to feed the larvae that are growing inside these bullhorns oh my god they're here sorry like yeah they're little ant lunch boxes and there's a picture here of ants just going to the end of a leaf collecting them yeah that's the only reason they exist so imagine we're talking about a tree we're talking about you know not this is not behavior like it is between honey guide and human which of course will have taken thousands of years or between the goby and the shrimp these aren't two things that can sort of adapt behavior relatively quickly this is something like a tree which whose evolution we might expect to be so much more slower to have these changes to adapt to an ant's symbiotic relationship bonkers 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 so the tree's gone to all this effort right the tree's gone to all this effort to provide a restaurant and affordable housing yeah. for our ant colony what's the point why is it doing this? Well, remember, the acacia doesn't have those bitter alkaloids to protect it from herbivores, so the ants are basically a bodyguard. The ants will aggressively attack creatures of all sizes attracted to the acacia leaves, killing insects such as crickets and stinging the heads of any mammals that might come uh, towards them. Apparently, they've got a very painful sting, which can cause a lasting burning and throbbing effect. And it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely off-putting to any herbivore that might come and browse the acacia. Do they just live in the thorns, or do they tunnel into the body of the tree? Pretty much just exist in the thorns. Mm. The thorns are designed to be these little hollow capsules that they can grow their larvae, and then the ants range around the yeah. tree. This is a great little phrase that I found when the tree gets attacked the aggressive ants release an alarm pheromone and rush out of their thorny barracks in great numbers brilliant and here's the last little tidbit that i've got on this we it's one thing to think okay the ants are going to protect the tree if a herbivore comes for it you know mm. it's one thing to think that because you might think that they think that the colony is under attack or mm -hmm. there's some sort of we know animals like to defend themselves yep but this is really cool because not only do the ants fight off animals they also fight off other plants so things like epiphytic vines that will grow up the acacia tree anything with an unfamiliar odor can cause the ants to swarm and target it another thing the ants do is they'll go down to the ground around the tree and remove seedlings oh. and any oh. other Off it. competitors that could potentially grow up compete with or overshade the tree so not only are they bodyguards they're also gardeners man and we are burning the wax in front of the honey guides like <laughs> ants are better than us <laughs> <laughs> that's what i've these last two seasons that's <laughs> my take-home message ants are better people than people and i haven't even like i haven't actively tried to change my mind like it's just the more i learn about ants 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 are <laughs> gardening their block of flats yeah. as a thank you to the tree that provided them yeah people on my estate graffiti the lift <laughs> you'd like how what am i meant to i want to be an ant
It's time for that part of the show where we take one of nature's magnificent creatures and we pit it against Roddy Shaw in a fight to the death. Now, today's animal has been suggested on Instagram by user underscore kfabe underscore, also known as Amy, and it is the capybara. Now, let's get to know our foe. The capybara is a giant rodent native to the wetlands of South America. They're the largest of all living rodents and basically look like massive guinea pigs. They can grow to about 1.3 metres long and stand at about 60 centimetres tall, with the females being slightly heavier than the males, with the heaviest topping out at 91 kilograms. They're semi-aquatic and live in all sorts of freshwater environments, grazing on aquatic vegetation. In fact, the name capybara comes from a Tupi word, which is some of the historical Aboriginal people uh, in Brazil, meaning either grass eater or the one who eats slender leaves, mm. which is quite nice. Its scientific name is a bit less flattering. That comes from the Greek meaning water pig hog. So <laughs> less, uh, the name giveth and yeah. it taketh away. Yeah. Capybara do not have the ability to synthesize their own vitamin C meaning that those not supplemented with vitamin C in captivity can develop gun disease as a sign of scurvy. So capybara can get scurvy. They're sociable and commonly found in groups of about 10 to 20 individuals, but sometimes up to 100 when water is running low in the dry season and they all bunch together. So bearing all that in mind, how big is the group that you're going to be taking on, Roddy, as I ask you how many capybara are too many capybara? Right. Okay. Massive guinea pig time. Massive guinea pig. Okay. Um, on guinea pigs and capybara and that thing you mentioned about vitamin C, I had heard, and this may now be, well, either not true, half true, or somewhere in between, yeah. but that the only other animal which couldn't synthesize... Vit humans can't synthesize vitamin C, mm -hmm. therefore we need to get it from fruit and whatever. And the only other animal was the guinea pig. Guinea pigs can't, that's correct. Which is why... When you talk about someone being a test subject, you refer to them as like a human guinea pig because it came from when they were like studying that or working that out or something they were using. There's a link between guinea pigs, vitamin mm. C, and the f test phrase. That's cool. To be a guinea pig. So imagine if, I don't know. It's one of those like, we've said them before, it's like 80% facts. And it's like, if you know we're wrong, we don't want to know. Yeah, it. yeah. It's, it's enough. I've got enough here that I'm yeah. going with it. But, you know, I'm painting with broad brushstrokes yeah. and uh, we're somewhere in there is a capybara. Yeah. Um, so maybe, you know, the toopy people are, oh, you test capybara. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, yeah, but capybaras basically being giant guinea pigs also cannot synthesize their own vitamin C. Yeah. So all the capybara pirates end up with scurvy. Oh, rodent pirates. Yeah, that'd be cool, wouldn't it? That'd be good. You wouldn't want to be a beaver, though, because they'd just eat the shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cutting down the mast. <laughs> well, you wouldn't want to be attacked by beaver pirates because, yeah, they would just tunnel their way in. Just gnaw through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank God we don't have beavers it's in the sea. boat made out of aluminium. Damming the Suez Canal. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Right. Capybara. So, semi-aquatic. That's got a... We've got to keep that in mind. Yeah. Partially webbed feet. Partially webbed feet. How... How do you... what Weapons-wise, they're going to have big teeth? Yeah, so weapons-wise, there's not really much. They've got sharp rodent-y teeth. So, yeah. But, but for eating, I mean, the hardest thing they'll eat is bark off trees. Right. Um, so they've got gnawy teeth, hmm. but not anything like beaver style. No, no. Other than that, although they're big, fat, giant guinea pig, their legs are quite long, slender for, like, 
walking around in the semi-aquatic mm. wetlands and marshlands of South America. But they can be, the biggest one's 91 kilograms. And that is big. Which is a big, big female. And that's basically one to one with, I think I'm that. Yeah, they're big, they're big old things. Hmm. What would anger a capybara? Because we've fought beavers, and mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, it was, you know, in view of a flowing river. Yeah. So that they really got fired up. I'm thinking with a capybara. I think they're pretty chill. They, they do have very zen-like yeah. energy. I think I've seen videos of them just sat in, like, hot pools yeah. and sort of steam coming up, and they sit there like some kind of, yeah. Yeah, they've become quite urbanised in some areas, and they'll just what? happily, like, yeah, they'll just happily, like, lay out in parks. You go down to a park, if there's, like, a river and stuff nearby, the capybaras are just, like, in South America in their native range. Right, not Derbyshire. No, no, no. <laughs> not like an invasive capybaras. Um, although, apparently, they are seen from time to time in Florida. Really? Yeah. No one's ever established whether there's a breeding population there, but they're seen from time to time in Florida. And pretty much everything is invasive. Spin the wheel and let's see what's going to be invasive in Florida today. Yeah, Um, I was going to say pretty much everything I think has been seen in, you know, like narwhals. I'm sure they've got them in Miami now at this stage as (laughs) well. capybara are seen fairly frequently. Um, Okay. So yeah, so they they will just, they're not particularly afraid of humans. They'll just sort of chill out in the parks next to sunbathers. Yeah. How big groups do they get? Because they're social so, things aren't they they yeah. are social uh, average groups about 10 to 20 individuals um, but yeah when the dry season comes and the pools start shrinking a bit okay. like hippos you can get 50 up, sometimes up to 100 of them in one area okay so straight away I'm mm. fighting them in the wet season because I'm not fighting 100 <laughs> <laughs> like let me let me let's lower that ceiling do we know when the wet season is in South America so the wet season in Brazil starts around September time. Oh, my birthday. Mm. So I'm going to kick a capybara in the head for my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you once say, or someone you know once say, capybara, fun to say, fun to slay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I swear I've heard you say that before. Yeah. Um, it is fun to say. Um, right. I mean... Weird, because I asked when the wet season was in Brazil, which suggests that I'm going to them, which mm, is very much counter to usual... never happened before. Usual, <laughs> usual protocol, exactly. Right after I said it, I was like, have I just painted myself into a massive corner? Yeah. Because maybe this is... Maybe this is me getting cocky. You mm. know, they look unassuming. Giant guinea pig. If you had, I mean, 10 capybara, That's if they're m- maxing out at the big females... 900 kilos <laughs> of pure capybara meat coming at me. Exactly. Right. They have a weakness that we also have, right? It's not like if if we could make vitamin C, then I could just be like, haha, get scurvy, yeah. right? But like... <laughs> I'm not going to let you eat any limes. Yeah, exactly. Okay, but that... Maybe maybe if you're all both juiced upon vitamin C. Yeah. Then you're both fighting each other in your final forms. <laughs> <laughs> Opposite of scurvy Hulk mode or something. <laughs> I should say they are, they do have quite a few predators. They are eaten by a few things. So if you want to look at any of these animals for inspiration, they're eaten by jaguars, pumas. The small ones are eaten by ocelots, eagles, and caiman. And the capybara is the preferred prey of the green anaconda. Yeah, most of those things would eat me as well. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, the day I have to fight a jaguar is the day this segment comes to a close. <laughs> um, right, okay, so... They can't do vitamin C. I can't do vitamin C. We're both susceptible to scurvy. Maybe we join forces for just a really nice awareness campaign. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. 
<laughs> Eat your citric fruits. Exactly. Um, in, in beautiful rodent man harmony. Yeah. I'm struggling to... To, I mean, some of these I don't really have much of a reason to fight them, but yeah. something about a capybara is so unassuming. Yeah. They're in a park. Maybe they start invading our parks. After your grass. After our grass. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> don't be coming for my grass. I'll tell you what, you're, you're <laughs> trying to make, you're trying to leave a nice long bit of grass for wildflowers. Oh. Trying to create a nice wildflower meadow. Conflict. That <laughs> you've moved into a house that's got a lawn that's been manicured for years, and you're like, I'm going to make this a nice wildflower meadow. We're going to do a little bit of wildflower gardening. Hold on. Who's that at the door? It's knock, the capybaras. Knock, knock. In, in like a Groucho Marx kind of <laughs> nose and moustache affair. Like, hello. <laughs> or what are they going to do? Well, not Buenos Aires. I don't know what... Well, I don't know Portuguese. <laughs> That's the take-home message here. I don't know Portuguese. Um, right, yes, infiltrated by mysterious... Cafe- and they're here to like, oh, we could sell you some limes. Mind if we look at your garden? It's kind of gentleman yeah. gentleman capybara. And all they want to do is nibble it down to the to the, to the little like, millimetre worth of grass. The nub. Yeah. One at 90 kilos... And, okay, we're back in the UK where it's always wet, so I'm under no (laughs) risk of there being hundreds of them. We're definitely not in three-figure territory, I can tell you that. Right, capybaras appeared at the door, Groucho Marx's face. I've had the wool pulled over my eyes. I've I've fallen for their ruse, and then I turn turn back around and I see them at the end, eating through my wildflower meadow. I reckon I I could certainly rugby tackle one, (laughs) right? I reckon they're a big... Good size, yeah. and I have no rugby experience. So <laughs> I see that as a win-win all round. <laughs> They're basically like an animated rugby tackling bag, aren't they? Yeah. That's essentially what they are. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, they have, they do have what I'm going to refer to as punching bag qualities. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm rugby tackling one, but I bet the moment one of them bites me, mm. it is, it is game. Hmm. I don't know the game over. I don't know whether they could... With the beaver, we learned that somebody had actually died from being bitten and yeah. it burst an artery. And but I don't know whether the capybara is able to you like open its jaws in the Saturday. Maybe that's sleeping on capybaras. But I feel like it, with a capybara bite, it'd be more like death by a thousand cuts. Yeah, but there's still death. Yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> a thousand times longer. <laughs> yeah, um, three, three, three. Rugby tackle one. Assuming that takes out some... Basically, how many times... Right. The tactic here is rugby tackle. Okay. This is now a question, not of how many capybara can I rugby tackle, but how many capybara can I... Right, okay. Because, as mentioned, I'll tell you this. (laughs) Right, I said I've got no rugby experience. That's a lie. I'm filling in more of my medical history on this podcast. Yep. I, um, when I was in school and I was like 11 or 12, the school I went to in London was quite a big sort of rugby school. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of, you know, everyone starting the school in year seven or whatever it is had to go and play rugby. At my first ever sort of game, uh, in the warm up, I broke my thumb. <laughs> okay. So I didn't make it through the warm up <laughs> <laughs> of an 11 year old. <laughs> Rugby game. Those capybara are eating all of your grass. Yeah. 
<laughs> so the tactic I've chosen here is rugby tackling, which I'm sticking with because it does look like it would be fun to tackle one of them. Yeah, it does actually. I reckon that that just like a giant soft toy. Yeah, I've, you know. So I reckon after three impacts, um, you know, like I said, your shoulder's gone. My thumb went uh, <laughs> in the warm up. So <laughs> coming in strong on three ninety kilo capybaras. So that fourth capybara is ruining my meadow because I'm checking myself out at three. <laughs> Okay, we've had a question mm-hmm. in from James Stevens on Instagram. Hello, James. Who wants to know, what would be the best animal to spoon and the best animal to be spooned by? Two different animals. Oh. Now, I immediately thought it would be nice to be... Mm, it, would, it would be nice to be spooned by a bear, but I also realised that can be taken in two different ways. Um, <laughs> But I just feel like they're quite big and cuddly. Uh, they could also <laughs> they could also rip me in half. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> so do, is the animal is is the animal going to behave like the animal does, or are we just picking the qualities? We are going to work through that. Okay. 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 Cool. Because then I thought, like, what about a woolly bear caterpillar? Tiny. You know yeah. about woolly bear caterpillars? Well, I'm, I'm guessing they're small. So that, yeah. Well, then I was just going to say, what about a woolly oh, bear, a big woolly bear caterpillar? Can we can we play play with the genre? Which are the which are the caterpillars that spend like years as a caterpillar and live up in the Arctic and then hibernate basically? I mean, I think we have to be able to tweak the sizes. Either us going down to their size or them yeah, because true. if it if we're limiting it to things which could actually spoon us yeah we've got some big cats yeah bears mm-hmm. the apes yep and then we're into like sharks <laughs> <laughs> yeah a sunfish yeah <laughs> <laughs> mola mola <laughs> okay um Okay, what don't I want? I don't want a crocodile. No. Uh, it's not cuddly. No. I maybe could be tempted by a gentle python. Are you? You're starting with what would spoon you, your little spoon. Yes. Okay. A gentle python. Right. Could like wrap you up. Yep. Quite as long as it wasn't too squeezy. What else? Like I've said, a bear, providing it doesn't shred me. Yeah. A koala bear. Oh. Now, obviously hugs. Not, not a bear, but come on. I mean, that's got a, hugs. Yeah. Also chlamydia. Shit. <laughs> but it's only spooning. <laughs> Guys, It's only we only spooned. Okay. <laughs> it's basically like, what animal would you like to be hugged by? Yeah, but... A bit more intimate. A bit more intimate. Yeah, exactly. So in terms of me being big spoon, yeah, uh-huh. and it's 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 a very different question <laughs> to we've answered objectively sexiest animal. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to spoon a secretary bird. <laughs> I'll spoon a spoon bill. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Do you think you could go like really really tiny and just curl up in the spoon bill of the spoon bill? 
Uh, yeah, but it'd probably try and eat you. Uh, yeah, probably try and filter feed you. Damn. Okay. I thought we'd actually found nature's spoon. Oh, well, we have. But just not this spoon. But no. <laughs> not the spoon we need. If you were really small and in a pelican's pouch, would that be nice? No. Okay. No. I wouldn't want to get intimate with a pelican. If you were really small and were in a kangaroo's pouch, would that be nice? I have a feeling no, but also I quite like the answer. But I just feel like when you get in there, it's just going to be very fleshy and hot. Is it wet? <laughs> or is it dry in there? I think there's got to be some level of humidity. But it's got to be dry, right? Because oh, yeah, well, the yeah, joeys just... don't come out gloopy. No, well, they, they, yeah. they get born and then they crawl up to the pouch, don't they? Yeah, no, um, yeah, as like a little jelly bean. Yeah. But yeah, but in it's the pouch dry. itself, it's not yeah, it's not gloopy. It's got to be dry. Okay, well, the pouch is a good idea. It's maybe not traditional spooning, <laughs> in how we know it. Well, it's not spooning in any way whatsoever. It's to be honest, it's more of a Ziploc bag. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think I would most like to be spooned by a koala bear, because mm. I think their actual grip, if I'm like some kind of branch, I think that's the closest that's visual one. spooning. Okay. Here we go. Yeah, I'm listening. This isn't spooning by any means. Right. You know when garter snakes hibernate? Oh, yeah. And there's like, just a million snakes. They're all like piled on top of each other. They're all other. piled on top of each other. Yeah. I'll get in there. Hmm. I just... It'd be like being <laughs> being a meatball in a bowl of spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> that appeals to me in some way. In much the same way that apparently... Being spooned by a bear at the risk of being ripped in half <laughs> appeals to you. I'm here to be my own little meatball oh, in God. snake spaghetti. Okay. Anything else? Uh, what else do we have? Any other animals that hug? What about... Th- oh! It's not hugging, actually, but something I've just thought of is, like, flying squirrels or something with, like, the folds of skin oh. that they can, like, wrap... Because then it's, like, a hug and a duvet... A colugo. Colugo. So that's when I was thinking about hugging. I was thinking I went lemurs, like gripping onto trees. Then I was like bush babies, and then I got to colugo, which is basically like a. If you don't know what a colugo is, it's like the halfway between something like a. Imagine a mouse and a tent. (laughs) (laughs) But they're quite big, aren't they? Yeah, they're big. So it's more. They look like like a lemur size. They look like a mouse. They're bigger than a. They're like a decent house cat. Mm. size they got a pointy face and when i say like cross with a tent if you like a flying squirrels flying squirrels skin flaps come from the wrist so their hand is just a hand whereas a kalugo's skin flap comes from the end of its pinky and it's webbed between all its fingers mm. so they are the most tenty yeah, they're the closest. They're a tent. They're they're, ba- they're basically on the evolutionary spectrum between flying squirrels and bats in terms of flying mammals, but the, not related to either. But not related to either. But for mammals to be able to fly, for bats to exist, what essentially had to happen was for a small mammal-type creature would have started gliding between the trees. But then the key thing that has to happen is the webbing has to extend between the digits to allow it greater control and actually flap. Mm. And the colugo is more down that road than any other flying, in inverted commas, squirrel, things like that. So, yeah, I feel like a colugo could give you a really good 
they're also bonkers camouflaged mm. and they look like um they look like a sort of lump of moss and they're they're from southeast asia and they just kind of cling on the edge of ma- well any tree but mm. you know like so if you're looking at a big tree it just looks like oh there's a burr which is those when they just have a lump growing on them and they're perfectly camouflaged and they just cling there so kind of similar ish in the way that a koala hugs a branch like yeah. a kalugo has a huggy an inherent je ne sais hug <laughs> to it <laughs> as well as this tent like being yeah and i'm trying to think when they have their young i can't think if the young cling to the back so they're outside of the tent or if the young cling they probably cling to the stomach because that's where the nipples are going to be i've seen a picture i think of of one like looking over like so it's got its head up and over the arm yeah the front arm looking that's looking a over I'm, kalugo is I'm a really, great i'd be spooned by a kalugo any day yeah kalugo definitely any day yeah and then i want to come in in terms of what i would spoon uh-huh. a seal oh yeah that's a good idea but you know when you see them all lying on the beach and just in the sun and they've been out they've had a swim and they've climbed up and just just curl up like not not a British beach I want to do this you know like California something like that yeah Yeah. and you know just sort of lie down in the sun yeah Kalugo and Seal we hope you enjoyed this last couple of episodes we've done in conjunction with the Association for the Study of Animal Behaviour. You can find them over at asab.org if you want to learn more about their mission to understand and spread the word on the world of animal behaviour. As always, we appreciate any donations, big or small, over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash how many geese to help us keep making this podcast in our spare time. Thank you all for listening and sharing, and please do go and give us a review if you haven't done already. Really helps us grow. We'll be back again next Tuesday for the continuation of season four.